Nima Well, we left off, we were thinking about indirect speech, how the sage voice communicates to us in confrontational ways, but through an indirect route. And so let's imagine, let's pick up with that theme, and let's imagine that you're uh, speaking about hypocrisy, and so you quote the voices that we hear, just like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs uh, would uh, say, I looked out the window and I saw this and I heard this, or just as Jesus said, you have heard it said. And so uh, you're speaking about hypocrisy and you say something like this, Uh, comedian Ricky Gervais recently said why he's not a Christian. Actually, he said he appreciates the teachings of Jesus. And if you forget about all that rubbish having to do with uh, virgin birth and resurrection, he believes the world would be a better place if people followed the teachings of Jesus. And then the atheist comedian uh, quotes Gandhi, who says, I, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. So then we look out the window. We need to learn from Ricky Gervais, don't we? He's such, so humorous, such skilled with humor. And I think I can learn from the atheist. Because he's he's right, isn't he? Christians, we have been hypocrites throughout the years. We've earned uh, the judgment, the scorn of others at times by the things we've done in the name of Jesus. I think he's right. I think we have to admit that that's true. And whatever, whoever the Christians were that Gandhi came into contact with, perhaps he had a legitimate gripe with what he experienced and what he saw. But it's not just Christians, is it? I think um, if, if we look around at, say, politics or our local sports league that we're a part of with our kids or volunteering with uh, uh, other parents in a neighborhood community or even in our own families, it seems to me that you don't have to be a Christian in order to be a hypocrite. It, it seems like there are other than Christian people who've also said they believed one thing and done another thing. Do you think that's true? I've been a hypocrite. Those who know me best and in my most honest moments, I know there are times that I've said one thing and then lived another. Now, as you're hearing the preacher talk like that, he's looked out the window. Yes, we need to learn from the atheist. We're all, we have been hypocrites. Christians in history have been hypocrites. I don't think it's just Christians who are hypocrites, are they? Haven't we seen other than Christian people? And then the preacher pointed to himself. I myself know what it is to be a hypocrite. What's my next move? mirror. How about you? Have you ever said you believed one thing, put on a face, acted a part, but then lived another way? Now you see, Uh, there's an implicit persuasion taking place. You can uh, feel it more than you can name it. But I'm actually reasoning with you. Because by the time I get away from the window, or if you you prefer it, I've zoomed way out on Google Earth, and I'm clicking in closer, closer, closer. And now I'm saying, how about you? You've agreed, you see. You've agreed, yeah, those Christians were hypocrites. You've agreed, yes, people who aren't Christians are hypocrites. You've definitely agreed, yes, preacher, I could imagine you have been a hypocrite. 
And now when I say, with shoulders shrugged and arms open, how about you? It would take a great deal of hubris, you see, to have it just admitted that nearly everyone else in the world has been a hypocrite, except for you. Now he could come and bust the door down. Ricky Gervais, you hypocrite! Woe to you! And then we could say, us versus them. We Christians, those atheists. But you see, that's not what the wisdom literature does. The wisdom literature starts with being human. It lays aside, as it were, its Jewish garb. It's Christian garb. It's clothes. And just starts as a human being in God's world. And it looks at the same things that anyone else can look at and see. And it names those things. You'll recognize it, won't you? You don't require any explicit knowledge of the covenant or of the Old Testament to encounter Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. You don't have to know anything about King David or Moses or Abraham. None of those things are mentioned. So you can access it without having to have any of those things clarified, which is different than if you're reading Isaiah or Jeremiah. And so we start with this mutual human being And uh, now, you see, perhaps, just perhaps, if the dear human being who we sometimes consider a a scoundrel, a rascal, like Ricky Gervais, but what if he heard me speaking? What if he heard me talking? You see, I'd want to win him. I'd want him to know about Jesus and the God who created him and that there actually is an afterlife and all this energy that he spends doing shows and movies about how there is no God, all that energy, paying attention to the God he says who isn't there. I'd love to have coffee with him, wouldn't you? Woe to you, no coffee. It's not happening. Indirect speech. David, you are the man. Now there's a possibility. And it's no less confrontational, is it? In some ways, coming roundabout lowers the defenses. And now there you are. And now in that message, instead of saying we the church in contrast to those atheists, we have implied what is biblically true. Atheists and the church, all of us, have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous, not one. And we need a Savior. And that Savior has found me. And saved me. And I want you, dear comedian, to know him too. But not just the comedian. Everyone listening. And so, the sage looks out the window, as it were, and gradually clicks, 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 zooms, zooms in, zooms in toward the mirror. And there we are, laid bare. Now, the second thing about that approach is that it assumes a different epistemology. So we really need about three months to talk about this, but I'll simply say this. If you're over 40 years old, 45 years old, 50 years old, if you're you're that age or older, then you've been part, likely been part of 
an epistemological assumption. By epistemology, I mean a way of knowing. You've, you've grown up wonderfully being taught this. You need to think right in order to feel right in order to do right. How are we doing? Am I nervous right now? Okay, where is he going? Think right. Feel right. Do right. And uh, when we're reading Paul's letters, for example, we say, of course, exactly. Think right. Feel right. Do right. But alongside of that, without removing that, uh, the wisdom literature goes in reverse. Experience something, feel, think. Behold, I saw a field. It was all overgrown. It starts with the experience, you see. The Lord Jesus is like this with his parables. He begins with an experience in creation and providence. Then you enter that story, that experience. What is it like? And then you draw a conclusion. A little folding of the hands, a little sleep, a little slumber. And there's the thoughtful teaching. Are you hanging in there? Uh, has one gone liberal? We're in a uh, historic moment in the West in which for the first time in history, so we're told, five generations are alive at once. And so what that means for us, if you're pastoring in a local congregation or a local organization, if you have those five generations represented, then you'll have about half of those generations, 40, 45 years old, 50, and older, think right, feel right, do right. And then under 30, 35 years old and under, give or take, experience something, Feel what it's like. Think about it. And what can happen, because we're impoverished with the wisdom literature, because the wisdom literature is often not a part of informing our biblical world and life view, the older clan will say to the younger clan, that's postmodern. You're denying the authority of Scripture. And the younger clan We'll look at the older clan and say, uh, you're rationalistic. You're denying the um, experience of Scripture. And what I'm saying right now is if you have all four wheels on the car, then it's not an either-or choice. The fact is, we can know God by knowing him, Calvin said, or by seeing ourselves in light of him. And the scripture itself sometimes presents a proposition and we reason deductively from it. And at other times, the same word of God, instead of saying, woe to you, we'll say, who has woe? And invite you into the experience of a sparkling cup, smooth when it goes down, on the mast and hearing the quote, and then leaving you to think of it, reason about it. Indirect speech leading to a way of knowing that complements another way of knowing we've all been taught. And this is why, thirdly, this is why many of us 
who've been taught to preach and teach, we've been taught to preach and teach Paul's letters. Wonderfully so. And we go line by line, verse by verse. Wonderfully so, deductive, because it's a letter. Though it flows out of a real historic story, it's linear. And so, those are the principles we've learned. Fewer of us have learned expository inductive approaches. We felt the need for it, trying to apply those uh, deductive-oriented principles to a narrative that Jesus tells, a story that he tells, or a parable, or trying to use those same principles for an Old Testament narrative. We find it Difficult, some of us, and we have to force the narrative to fit a deductive statement. So, some of us have learned an inductive expository method, which instead of going line by line in a letter, goes scene by scene in a story. And instead of the big idea being up front, It comes at the end, the way a story does. You don't know how a story in the Bible ends until you finish reading the story. Sure, if you've read it before, you know where it comes, where it ends. But if it's the very first time you've read and Abraham's knife is raised in his hand, if you're watching that in a movie, whatever happens next changes everything. And you don't know what's going to happen. And so, an expository, inductive approach goes scene by scene with a big question at the beginning, and the answer doesn't come to the end. Fewer of us have learned that. And so, with most of us knowing how to teach and preach deductively from Paul's letters, and not many of us knowing how to teach inductively faithful to Scripture, we we come to Ecclesiastes and we are baffled because... uh, When you come to Ecclesiastes, you have several genres going on in the letter itself, in the book itself. Yes, you do have propositions uh, in one section. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. By the way. As a pastor, I often refer to this passage for those who've been hurt by the church and by Christian people, and because of that, they are cynical or suspicious of Christianity. I often say that makes all the sense in the world. The wise tell us, guard your steps when you go to church. There might be fools there. But... Verses 1 through 7, this is just like a letter from Paul. You can walk right down through these verses using all the same tools that you would use if you were preaching from Ephesians or from Colossians. Yay! That's the good news. The challenging news is that's really rare in the book of Ecclesiastes. What other kinds of genres are there? Questions. Questions. Ecclesiastes is full of questions. And the key for us when preaching and teaching Ecclesiastes and and the gospel narratives, but Ecclesiastes is to let a question be a question. That is the challenge for us. We have to feel the force of the question and not give an answer where it doesn't or at least too quickly. Otherwise, we undercut the power of the question. And so, our Lord Jesus, what will it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? You see, you need the pause. You have to let it be silent. And you have to look into the eyes of people as if you're actually asking. 
Otherwise, you know it. If you're listening to the preacher or teacher, you'll assume at first that it's a rhetorical question, which means you allow yourself to remain closed. Ah, it's a rhetorical question. He's not really asking. Wait a minute, he's still pausing. It's still quiet. Is he asking? And now the work can begin. A question has to be an actual question because it is in the text an actual question. And one of the keys when you're preaching from Ecclesiastes is to let a question be its own main point. Let a question be an entire main point. Or, if you're thinking in terms of subpoints, let a question be the dominant subpoint. Here are the kinds of questions. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Other questions in Ecclesiastes. What use is pleasure? What a wonderful question. What good is pleasure? What gain has the worker from his toil? What's the purpose of your work anyway, all of your life? Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirits of the beast goes down into the earth? How do we know if animals don't go to heaven? For whom am I toiling? And depriving myself of pleasure. Why am I working so hard and at the t- same time so unhappy? Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Why should you destroy yourself? Why should you die before your time? That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Who can tell a person what will be? Multiple questions throughout Ecclesiastes. Wonderful questions. Let the question be a question. Let it, let it feel its intended force. And then use this pattern. Make sense, they say. You say, pause, move on. How do you let a question be a full main point, I'm telling you? Makes sense. This question makes sense to us, doesn't it? They say, how would those you know try to answer this same question? That's looking out the window. You say, what about you? What answers are you giving to this question? Pause. Move on. So let's see how that works. I've turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Again, these uh, much fuller and thorough notes are available to you, hopefully on a link that we'll provide for you. And you'll be able to go back and see in great detail what we're talking about now. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 4... Let's imagine in verse 7, I have, a, I have a point. Workaholism enlivens our outer life. Working hard enlivens or invigorates our outer life. And then in verse 8, working hard deadens our inner life. Working too hard deadens our inner life. And then the end, it gives us an unhappy life in the end. But in verse 8, it's a question. It just says, he never asks For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? The one who's constantly working doesn't stop to ask why. Why am I depriving myself of pleasure? And in this context, it would mean the good, honest, given pleasures that God's given to human beings. The recovery of Eden, the hint of Eden, a place to be, a people to love, and a thing to do. This is the pleasurable provision of God. There's nothing better For a human being, Ecclesiastes says again and again and again and again and again and again, nothing better than to enjoy your work, enjoy your lot, enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, 
Enjoy the wife of your youth. So verse 8. Whom am I tolling and depriving myself of pleasure? Makes sense. So I would say this. We're so frightened with work. We're so fatigued with work and making money and paying bills. Who has the time to ask bigger questions about our soul or our purpose or the quality of our relationships? It makes sense that he's asking this question and pointing this out. They say, now think about someone you care about who works too much. They're always on the go. Even those who work at home, taking kids here and there, there and here, here and there, there and here. Even those in ministry, working constantly, nonstop, no Sabbath, no break. Why would they say that they don't pause to ask about the condition of their soul? What answer would they give? Well, some would say they have no time. Others would say they're too tired for such deep questions. Maybe they're apathetic. Maybe they feel cynical. Maybe they think we're all stuck anyway in this work. What's the point of asking deeper questions? Maybe someone you know believes that money and productivity is actually the most important thing in life. Why would you bother with asking deeper questions? That's what they say, but how about you? What do you say? How long has it been since you've asked the question of your own soul? Why are you working so hard? And why are you so unhappy? What's keeping you from asking that question? Move on. Let a question be a question. They're on purpose. Don't be too quick to answer them. Let the force of them sit. How do you do that? Makes sense. They say. You say. Pause. Like you mean it. Move on. Another kind of genre that you'll find is testimony. Memoir. When you come to Ecclesiastes, it's like you're reading someone's diary, their journal, their uh, Evernote file, where they're keeping track of their inner life. They'll say things like, I have seen, I said in my heart, I said, if you see, I perceived, I saw, I made, I considered. And so when we're trying to apply the principles, deductive principles from Paul's letters, and we come to this personal memoir, we're not quite sure what to do. Now, for some of us, we're bothered already, and so I need to take a little time and, and speak about this. We're bothered that a preacher would talk about himself, and so we don't quite know what to do with Ecclesiastes. So I'd like to give you a couple of thoughts. Much more to say, but just a couple of thoughts. The reason, at its best, we feel this way is because we do not want to preach anything other than Christ. We don't want to preach ourselves, as Paul said, but Christ. It isn't less than that, but, but there's more to it. We do not preach ourselves, Paul said, but Christ with ourselves, he says. Making our appeal to you. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, almost every teacher in the Bible teaches us, not all, but almost all, teaches us. And we receive their instruction knowing their story. 
You, th- you know that, right? You thought about that? So we learn about faith from a man who was so afraid that he put his wife in jeopardy by handing her over to another man whose sole purpose would be to use his power sexually in her life. That's Abraham, the father of our faith. We learn the story of the law and the law. The promise, promises foreshadowed from a man who never saw the promised land because his temper got the best of him. We learn how to pray from an adulterer, murderer, polygamist. And we know he repented of his adultery and of his murder. But to my knowledge, there is no record of King David repenting of his polygamy. And we learn prayer from him in the Psalms. We learn about love from a persecutor of the church, an ISIS terrorist named Saul of Tarsus. We learn about love from a son of thunder who wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy Samaritans in the name of God. John. We learn about holiness from uh, a man who denied he even knew Jesus. It's set up so that many, many, many of those who teach us in the Scripture, they teach us as those whom God has shown us their flaws. We receive the teaching in the context of their flaws so that we see that God and not them are the hero. An interesting anecdote, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, uh, was criticized by folks like me because how, how much he talked about himself in his sermons. And uh, as a matter of fact, the local printing press, because they printed his sermons week after week, and at that time they had to typeset, right, each little letter uh, for the full letter of a newspaper. The local printers complained. They were always running out of the letter I. And they placed the blame squarely on Charles Spurgeon. There's thousands, you know, of copies of his sermons were going out. And when Spurgeon was asked about this, as a matter of fact, many of us in this room probably would be a critic of his. And when he was asked about it, he appealed to the Apostle Paul as his defense. He simply said, the Apostle Paul is always talking about himself. And I invite you to consider it. I never had until I took Spurgeon's challenge. And sure enough, reread Paul's letters and look for the word I or me or us or we. And sure enough, Paul is constantly talking about himself how many beatings he's had, how he was spared sorrow upon sorrow, how he loved them from his depths, how uh, when he came into Macedonia, he had no rest. Fear within, fighting without, afflicted at every turn. Paul, how you doing? I'm a mess. I'm scared out of my mind. I have conflict everywhere. I'm wore out. How are you? But God. When you're thinking about this question of talking about ourselves, there's much more to say. But notice the biblical pattern, and if you will, consider it this way. Maybe here's a tool to help you clay jar talk and treasure talk. Clay jar talk. 
where the Apostle Paul says, we have this treasure in clay jars. This is where he says we're afflicted, right? We're poured out. We're downcast. So that the treasure can be seen. Treasure talk, but God. I will boast all the more in my weaknesses, treasure talk, so that his grace, that's treasure talk, clay jar talk, my weaknesses, treasure talk, his grace. Now the reason we're troubled by preachers who speak of themselves is usually because one of these is missing. Think about it, see what you make of it. For some of us, particularly if we're younger, If all we hear is treasure talk from a preacher, we're suspicious. Everything is always promise, always rainbow, always happy, always good. If a preacher talks as if that's the way the world is, we just walk back out into the fallen world and say, that is not the way to categorize what I see in the world. And so we're suspicious. And then we'll say, we need to be authentic. And what we mean by being authentic is talk about everything that's bad. Have you noticed? What does it mean to be authentic? It's hard. It's hard. So I have a question for you if you're a bit younger. Can you be, what would it be like for you to be equally thorough in your descriptions of beauty as you are in your descriptions of hardship? What would that be like if you could be equally authentic about what is good as you are about what is bad? Others have a struggle on the other side. (laughs) It's just always clay jar talk. It's just always clay jar talk. And others of us are saying, give me Jesus. Where's Jesus? I didn't come to hear all your clay jar talk. Where's the treasure? Where's the promise? Where's the truth? Where's the grace? Where's the scripture? And so anyway, a good way, well, I think it's good. Um, Maybe it'll be helpful. Ask yourself this question. When you're training others, teach them to ask this question. Is there clay jar and treasure talk? Is there treasure talk and clay jar talk so that when people encounter the teaching of Scripture, they see that we are not their Savior, but we ourselves need the Savior, and there is a Savior, and we're pointing you to Him. And so, what does this mean now? It means that when, when you're in a section of Ecclesiastes, and it's a memoir, a testimony, how do you know how to delineate the sections of the text, like where your main ideas would come from, where one thought begins and ends? When you're in a letter, you can kind of tell you're looking for logical conclusion of where one thought begins and one thought ends, and so that you know how, oh, okay, that's a point, and then this is a separate point. How do you do that in testimony and memoir? It's this. When he changes, when he adds another statement, like I saw, I perceived, he's indicating a new idea. Almost every time. It's a good enough guide. So he doesn't just say I saw once. He'll say I something else again. And when he does... It indicates a shift in thought. And so, for example, in Ecclesiastes, he might say, I saw. And then as you look at, I saw. Okay, that's going to be one main idea. I need to see whatever's going on after he says, I saw. Then he says a little bit later, Verse 17, I said in my heart, aha, that indicates the introduction of a new idea. 
almost always. So I saw, verse 22, ah, that's the end of a thought and the beginning of a new one. So in verses 16 through 22, I saw, I said in my heart, so I saw. That's how, that's what I'm looking for in my exegetical preparation to indicate for me where one thought begins and ends and another thought begins. So that in this case, going through these verses, I would say I have three main moves in this message. Because I said, I, these phrases, I saw, I said in my heart, so I saw. If we were in class, you see, I'd say, what questions do you have all along the way here? So we've looked at propositions. That's the same stuff that you use in your New Testament letters. We've looked at questions. We've said, let questions be questions. A question becomes its own main point. Use the make sense, they say, you say, pause, move on way of handling it. Then we've looked at testimony and memoir. How do you determine where an idea begins and ends when you're looking at these, these sections? Because there are many of them. Notice that every time he introduces a new testimonial statement, that is likely indicating for you where one point ends and another point begins. Poetic speech. There's a great deal to say here, and in the notes that will be on the link, you'll have thorough notes to look at them. But you have three basic kinds of poetic speech in Ecclesiastes, which gets at this indirect experience in order to feel so that you can think approach. And the three kinds of poetic speech are parable or story, poem, and then a kind of poem called a proverb. Now, one of the things I'd like to say in our last few minutes here, we're almost there. It's a lot of content, and it's after lunch, and the sun's in some of your eyes. So I know that's not easy. But when poetic speech is being used, do not think that this is just illustration. That, that's our culture. Our cultural assumptions are that you reason and then you use illustration if you have time to complement what you've reasoned about. In that point of view, illustrations are not necessary. But Ecclesiastes is not a post-enlightenment book. It does not assume, as we've already said, that proposition is the only way to reason. The use of poetic speech is itself a reasoning with you. Just like Jesus' parables. Let me ask you a question. Ready? We are God's quacker watchers. True or false? Come on. False. Graham, was that you? Was it you? How do you know? How do you know it's false? It's a good guess. It was a good, good guess. Why did it have to why does it have to be a guess? We don't know what a quaker wadger is, and we cannot reason about it until we can imagine what it means. Imagination isn't supplemental to reasoning. It's vital for reasoning. A quacker wadger is a bunch of lines and scribbles. We call it English. But if you don't know English, it's just lines and scribbles. 
You can't reason about that until you can imagine meaning. Even in English, we don't know what it means. It means puppet. We are God's puppets. Now let's reason. True or false? Now we can reason. So, uh, our, our Western heritage wonderfully, wonderfully has taught us so much. And if you're Epicurus, Epicurus, and you're wanting to think about the existence of God, you'll use a syllogism, and you'll say, if God cannot stop evil, then he is not all-powerful. If God can prevent evil but does not, then God is not good. If God is all-powerful and good, then evil would not exist. Human experience is that evil does exist, therefore there is no God. Logical syllogism. How does Jesus address the same question? The ancient question of the problem of evil. How does he address it? There was a farmer who sowed his seed. And at night, an enemy came and took it. And those who worked the fields had said, Master, didn't you sow good seed? Then how is it there are these weeds Jesus reasons about the problem of evil by telling us about a field. Look, look at the field. There are wheat and weeds. Both exist together. That's what a sage does. A Hebrew sage. And so... When we come to poetic speech, parable, story, poem, and proverb, it isn't supplemental to reason for us to skip past. It is the way, the chosen way of reasoning with us, and God has ordained it. We're not in Paul's letters at this moment. And we can't make Solomon be Paul. We have to let Paul be Paul and Solomon be Solomon and surrender to it. Now, uh, for some of us, uh, our strength <laughs> is something like Romans. Love Romans, linear argument. That's our strength. And so what happens is when, when we're in Ecclesiastes, we keep trying to make a, a linear propositional outline. But if God and God has inspired this inerrant word, then this is not only telling us that this is wisdom literature, but it's telling us this is how God talks. Sometimes God reasons with us like a letter, and other times God tells us a story. And if God chose to reason this way, then it means those of us more comfortable with Romans have to stretch and surrender and learn this way of speaking that God has, and we'll need others to help us do it. And others of us on the other side, we're much, we're much more at home with a poem or a story. And so we're always trying to turn Paul's letters into stories and poems and riddles. But God would stretch you. And so that when someone hears the full course of your preaching and teaching, say over a year or two years, it should be, shouldn't it? If they are hearing the whole counsel of God, wouldn't it not only be the content of the book, but the way God spoke it? And so if they encountered the whole counsel, wouldn't it be that at times they hear from you extended argument? propositionally reasoned, but at other times they hear from you a riddle, a poem, a question, a story. After all, because this is how God has spoken. And to encounter us in some small, imperfect way is being given a glimpse of how it is to encounter God. And so, Parable, poem, and proverb. As we walk through, let's, let's just land here as, as, we, as we end.
I have seen this example under the sun, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 13 through 18. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. There once was a little city and a small population and a great king, and the word great is repeated three times. Two paths of greatness are being set in front of us. One is loud, furious, a great king besieging a little town, as all bullies do, not picking on someone his own size, but picking on the vulnerable. But there was wisdom in that city, a wise man. He was poor. He had no connections, no money. It's not a metaphor. He was poor. But wisdom isn't found in wealth. It's not only the wealthy who can be wise, not only the educated who can be wise, but the poor. And that poor man outsmarted the great king and delivered the city from the great king. Better are wise words heard in quiet than the shouting of rulers among fools. And of course, as we'll see the next time we meet, there was another man who delivered the city poor, whom no one remembered. But that's for next time. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are, so much more to say, but this is a lot for us. We ask that you would continue to open our heart as we hear about your wisdom through Ecclesiastes and Job, and that you would teach us your ways, and that you would expand and deepen and widen and broaden our view of who you are as you speak to us through wisdom. It's in your name we pray, amen. Nima. <laughs>